Welcome to another episode of Think Business Futures. On this episode, we're looking at collective aggregation and the appeal of each of us to make small contributions to grand collective outcomes. To help us understand what this particular strategy is, how it works, and how it can be used to encourage us to do good, we are joined by Adrian Camilleri. Adrian is a consumer psychologist and a senior lecturer at the UTS Business School. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you for having me. So, every year in their fundraising campaign, Wikipedia appeals to readers using a phrase that goes something like this. If everyone reading this gave just $5, our fundraiser would be done within an hour. Now, from a marketing perspective, can you help us understand what is going on in this sort of statement? Sure. I mean, I'd like to start first from an economic perspective. And an economist might call this cheap talk, which Mm -hmm. is, this is a statement that means nothing. If you get a bunch of people to do a very small action, then you get a, a large benefit. Yes, of course, but... There's no guarantee anybody is actually engaging in any of the said activities. So uh, from an economic perspective, you might think, well, this is an empty statement, but we keep seeing it every year from Wikipedia. So uh, presumably it's having some kind of impact. And I think uh, it's interesting from a marketing perspective, the idea that it's uh, encouraging people to think about the collective. Uh, Many people engaging in a small action can actually lead to Uh, a very big outcome in this case, keeping Wikipedia running. So I think there's clearly some psychology in the background, although I hadn't seen any research uh, explaining what's going on. And so that's kind of where uh, our research project emerged from. Hmm. And in your research, you call this the collective aggregation effect. Can Can you give us any other examples of where you see these sorts of statements? Sure. I mean, once I've started this research project, I started seeing it everywhere. Um, One of the sort of inspirational examples for me was uh, there was a 2008 Walmart commercial and it went something like, if all Walmart customers, all 200 million of us uh, changed our light bulb to a more efficient light bulb, then it would be the equivalent of taking 11 million cars off the road. Oh, that sounds amazing. Very impressive. Yeah. Uh, You can take a small amount of savings and multiply it by 200 million And you get a very large number regardless. And so that's what they did in this case. And so they were using this collective aggregation, as we call it, by taking a small bit of savings from upgrading your light bulb and uh, multiplying it across a collective. It's a hypothetical collective in this case. And in your recent work, you've examined these collective aggregation effects in encouraging what you call pro-social behaviour. What sort of behaviours fall within this category? So pro-social behavior is any action you engage in that has benefits for other people or society. Mm -hmm. Uh, So anything like helping somebody cross the street who needs help or engaging in voluntary uh, maybe soup kitchen or donating money can also include activities that can help you. So, for example, if you decide you are going to buy an energy efficient, let's say a fridge, uh, yes, you're going to save money from the saved electricity, but you're also going to reduce your carbon footprint. And so that could also be considered a pro-social action. So what's the theory behind how this works? I mean, in your research, you look at, uh, for example, the role of what's called the numer numerosity heuristic that one's tough to say that's right i'm glad you said it and i won't have to now so basically it's the idea that 
people focus more on numerators than denominators. If you take a fraction, let's say one half, mm -hmm. then the top number, the one, is the numerator, and the bottom number, two, is the denominator. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, people are spending more of their attentional resources focusing on that numerator. The top number. The top number. So, mm -hmm. give you a pretty solid example of that. So, let's say I was going to offer you some tickets in a lottery. Mm -hmm. And which lottery would you prefer? Which scenario would you prefer to be in? You have one ticket mm -hmm. out of a lottery that has 10 total tickets. Mm -hmm. So, you have one out of the 10. Mm -hmm. Or you have nine tickets mm -hmm. out of a lottery that has a total of 100 tickets. Ooh. What's your preference? I kind of want the nine, but I don't know why. I just like having nine in my hand. Yes, most people do like having the nine tickets in their hand. And that's an example of this numerosity, uh, this focus on the numerator. Nine is bigger than one. Mm -hmm. And if you're just focusing on the numerator, that seems like an obvious choice. But oh, wait a second, I'm just doing the maths right now. Yes, yeah, so if you do the maths. Oh, goodness. One out of 10 is 10% chance. And nine out of 100 is 9% chance. Right. Dang. Yes. All right. There's the numeros numerosity here. Thank you for Hard to say, that. hard to escape. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, that can expand into other contexts. So, for example, there's been some research where people are offered a, uh, a warranty. Let's say, again, go back to the fridge example. You've mm -hmm. got two fridges that you're choosing between. One has nine years warranty. One has seven years warranty. And okay, so that's clear. But uh, we could also express that warranty in terms of months. So it would be 108 months versus 84 months. It's the same thing. That's nine versus seven years. Mm -hmm. um, but it turns out that people are more impressed by the 108 months than mm -hmm. the nine years. It sounds bigger. It does sound bigger. Again, because focusing on the numerator. Mm. And so we might get people to actually shift their preference towards the product that has the longer warranty if we express it in terms of months rather wow. than years. So how does it then relate to these appeals to a collective aggregate then? In this collective aggregation effect, we are comparing what the benefits would be for one individual person versus the benefits of what would be aggregated for, we tend to use a thousand people. We did some initial research. We tested if we aggregate over 10 or 100 or 1,000 or 10,000. 1,000 seemed to be the sweet spot. Mm -hmm. And so we're getting this benefit, again, of the, the numerator. If you just focus on, uh, well, in this case, the numerator is going to be the benefits. Mm, so so it's that big outcome at the end the of the statement. The big outcome at the end, that's yeah. the numerator. Yeah. And you kind of ignore the, wait a second, how many people did we aggregate over to get that big outcome at the end? So mm -hmm. if you ignore the, the denominator, you're just focusing on the big outcome at the end, the mm. numerator, then we can see why this, uh, this heuristic has an impact. So the heuristic is at play here because we are putting more attention in this particular statement. We're putting our attention on that big outcome, um, which is going to be achieved by our, the collective. And we'll kind of disregard just, you know, how many people we're going to need to get it. That's exactly it. Mm -hmm. yeah. You also looked at the role of time, and in particular time discounting. Right. And how does that explain the collective aggregation effects? Yeah, so there are a number of different factors that go into producing this uh, collective aggregation effect. So we've talked about one, which is the heuristic. Another one is time discounting. So people, rationally, they, uh, they discount future benefits and costs. So clear example, what would you prefer? I give you $50 today or $50 in two months from now? 
should be a pretty easy one. Today. You want 50 today, right? Today, particularly for the finance people out there. They're probably like yelling at the radio going, today, (laughs) today. So what if I made it $50 today or $60 in two months? Today, today. So what number would I need to offer you in two months for you to switch? Probably something like, you know, like $100. You're going to have to double it. Sure. And so a lot of people have that same reaction. And so they're discounting future savings and benefits. And so one of the benefits of this collective aggregation is that you can say, if a lot of people engage in this action, we can have a really big outcome today. And so anybody who who suffers from this high discount where they really don't care what the benefits are going to be in two months or two years, then they don't have to worry because this statement is framed in terms of the benefits are occurring today. You also looked at efficacy. This is the kind of the third strand in, in that particular research paper. Right. What is efficacy and how does it play uh, in this scenario? So I can talk about two different types of efficacy. Uh, one is ability efficacy and one is outcome efficacy. So ability efficacy is all about your belief as to whether you can engage in some kind of action. So Let's say you're trying to lose weight, that's your goal, and the action that you're going to use to get to your goal is going to the gym. So your ability efficacy is your perception of whether you can go to the gym regularly, say. And then outcome efficacy is, let's say I do engage in the action, I do go to the gym, what's the likelihood that that behavior will actually lead to the goal that I'm looking for? So what's my belief regarding going to the gym actually leads to... uh, lower weight, let's say. And we can think about those at the level of the individual. So we can have individual level outcome and ability efficacy. And we can also have collective level. So if we have more collective goals, so maybe you're on a team, maybe you work in an organization, or maybe you're just a society and you have societal goals, like let's say reducing world hunger or something like that, then you can also think about these two forms of efficacy on the collective scale. So what is the collective or the group or my country or the world's ability to engage in whatever the action is. And if we do engage in that action together, what's the likelihood that we're going to achieve our goal? So that's kind of the theory behind this concept of efficacy. There's lots of research showing that in order to motivate people to engage in behaviors, they need to feel a sense of efficacy, right? Nobody's going to engage in any action that they think is completely pointless and they can't do. Yeah, so what we we were trying to measure efficacy, all four different types in our studies. And what we found is that when people were presented with this statement around if many people engage in this pro-social action, then we'll get these huge benefits. Just reading that sentence uh, increased people's perceptions of collective outcome efficacy. They felt like, you know what, we, we can do this together. That doesn't seem that hard. And so that was another one of the forces underlying this effect. Oh, that's kind of great. You know, this collective sense of optimism in our fellow human being to join in and get these big outcomes. If you've participated in a campaign that encouraged you to do something for a common goal, you'll be familiar with this kind of collective aggregate effect. Maybe you were recently encouraged to participate in Plastic Free July or Movember. Campaigns that promote a pro-social behavior are increasingly common. But that wasn't the case in 2007, when Sydney residents were encouraged to turn off their lights for one hour as a symbolic commitment to the environment. The Worldwide Fund for Nature, or WWF, was behind the campaign, and one of its co-founders says he was surprised by the scale at which the campaign grew. 
Yeah, so um, I'm Andy Ridley. I'm the CEO of Citizens of the Great Barrier Reef and I'm based up in Cairns. Andy began Earth Hour as a single city campaign in 2007. After eight years as CEO of Earth Hour, he's now leading an organization that promotes pro-social behavior to save the Great Barrier Reef. He is acutely aware of the pro-social benefits of individual actions multiplied on a large scale. Can we start with Earth Hour? Where did that idea begin and how did that grow into a campaign? Well, it's interesting. Conservation is such an, uh, such an interesting field, but it's so frequently and still to this day so frequently tends to talk to itself or, you know, fight with those who are never going to be uh, converted. And, and with conservation particularly, you know, if you really want to move the ball, really want to move the ball, yeah, everything has to be kind of mainstream. And so somewhere in the middle. So that was something when I was working, as I was working at WWF, in um in sydney and we, we were actually really successful we had a really a golden age actually of successful campaigns particularly around marine but the climate change issue seemed to be very hard to get traction on it even back then was very polarizing but we sort of really wanted to start to deal with the the problem which we called the five percent problem you talk to the five percent already agree with you or the five percent that never agree with you and you ignore the bulk in the middle so we, we actually started a few other things we actually uh, started a campaign as a sort of a parent of earth hour called future makers and future makers didn't really work it was sort of slightly agency dri- driven um but it didn't really work but we actually learned a couple of really interesting things out of it or we took a couple of really interesting things out of it or ideas one of which was Working within WWF, we were very constrained by the brand. So on one hand, you might think the brand is really helpful, and it would have been in terms of the resources that you could bring to bear. But on the other hand, the rules around the brand meant you couldn't do very much. But for example, if you wanted to work with a um, uh, corporate or something like that, if you're trying to move quickly, be nimble, if you're trying to do anything kind of interesting, um, you know, you couldn't do it. It immediately went into the fundraising team, and you were kind of basically, you know, Dead, dead in the water. So if you're trying to do something big, you're trying to get scale and you haven't got much money, you've got to kind of investigate where can you get channel. You know, this is 11, 12 years ago, right? So this is all sort of fairly obvious now. And it's all pre-social media. So we were thinking, right, well, who's got reach? Lots of companies have, media partners have. So we built, we, we started working on the idea of an open source brand. So one that we could develop that would have its own set of rules of engagement that would be essentially policed by the people rather than by your brand guidelines. So that's kind of one thing. And then second thing was, and again, this is sort of fairly obvious, uh, but at the time, not many other people had done it, was we, we started talking to a media buyer, which in this case was Starcom, uh, about how could we get our hands on as much pro bono ad space as possible. So basically this is ad space that's not been taken up or ad space that might be given as part of a bigger deal to buy ad space by companies we managed to grab a very large amount of free ad space. We had this kind of idea in our heads that maybe we could use social media, check this out for a crazy idea, maybe we could use social media to connect people all over the city and all over the world. Crazy, right? Crazy idea. And honestly, at the time, it was one of those things where people thought we were a bit mad. And then the last piece, which sort of fell into place quite late, was we decided to talk about, like every conservation campaign to that 
up until then had really been a negative, right? So, you know, help us do this or this happens. Yeah, yeah. Right? So it's a sort of gun, gun against the head kind of campaigns, right? Where, with, um, with Earth Hour, we decided we were going to use hope and not fear. So that was, again, that was sort of fairly radical at the time. But that was kind of that was sort of where we were coming from, how we developed the campaign. And then it was really, you know, feet on the floor. You know, it was really about going around Sydney and trying to make sure we could make this happen. So we got a whole lot of help from all sorts of different people. We 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 got the mayor behind it. We got the then um, state premier behind it. Um, Fairfax, who were massive in that first year, uh, became the kind of the media the media partner. But they were much more than that. You know, it was very tactical. Um, but it was really thought through. We thought through a lot of it, but I mean, you're still on the night, the first night, didn't know if it was going to work. You know, I was standing beside the, uh, beside the Harbour of Botanical Gardens. We had like a small event going on there. And I honestly didn't know whether it was just going to be some most mass, massive humiliation, uh, or whether it was going to work. And then kind of, you know, the, the, as the, as the hour struck, I sort of think we all thought that the lights would go off in one go, but actually what happened is, you know, first one logo go off on the top of one building, then one building would go off, and then another building, then another building. And then, you know, it'd be one of the big hotels would go dark. And then, you know, the bridge suddenly started to go dark. And then the opera house went dark. And what we realized is this kind of the whole city started to look really dark was that we, we'd tried to plan for enough buildings to go off so it wasn't a, so it worked enough. But actually what happened was, you know, literally it looked like the whole city had turned its lights off. I'm just one person. What, what can, can I, I do, do about, about global warming? warming? I, I try, try to be environmentally aware. I try not to be wasteful. I try to do the right thing. But I'm just one person. What difference can I make? Earth Hour, 7.30pm, March 31st. It kind of grew massively to about 5,000 cities and then, you know... It kept going and, and um, you know, some cool stuff happened on the way. Yeah. So you kind of by creating an open source brand, decoupling it from WWF, being strategic, being positive, you created not only a brand, but also an event and a, and a culture kind of with this whole thing. Yeah. I mean, I think it was the culture piece that was interesting because the, the bit that we hadn't planned and we never kind of factored in was that what we'd actually come up with was an excuse for people to talk to each other. And and so, you know, it gave people an excuse to lean over the fence and chat to their neighbor or talk to someone in a bar. And so a lot of the stories we had to get the whole project going in the first place revolved around, you know, the broad, how broad the participants were, you know, so from, you know, a Buddhist monk to a um, NRL player, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so that was kind of, that was a factor we didn't factor in. You know, that was a big part of what, when it worked, it was always something to do with that. With the culture. Yeah, it was, it was, it was always to do with this idea that you felt part of something bigger, mm. but you felt that you were part of it, that you had ownership on it, rather than, um, you know, you're a member of something. I don't know, so there's a difference. And, and that's a really great segue, actually, to a couple of the, the tenets of um, Adrian's research. So looking at the what he calls the collective aggregate effect, which is what you talk about, that feeling that you're part of something larger, that 
you know, uh, the result is that people take action as if they were a large group. Uh, there were a few things in their study that they found made people more or less inclined to participate in something like Earth Hour. One of them is what he called the numerosity heuristic. So in the case of Earth Hour, and possibly within the case of Citizens of the Great Barrier Reef as well, thinking about the scale of your activity or the scale of the thing that you're trying to do it directly impacts people's ability to participate. So with Earth Hour, when you were talking about turning off the lights, you were also talking about the, uh, the scale. Was that something you thought about from the beginning? Yeah, so mass is what we were talking about before when you talk about the 5% problem is what you're actually talking about is, is if you don't get the middle, if you don't get scale, if you don't get you know, the mass engagement, then it's much harder to affect, affect change. I mean, that was kind of, that was the theory in the first place. And we were trying to get out of just running campaigns that were like, you know, a petition that kind of got, you know, people who already cared to kind of sign up to it. And then, you know, that was it. So we were trying to create a sense of impact. I mean, the idea of a whole city going dark for an hour at the time, it was pretty, again, it was a pretty wild idea, you know, and, and the fact that it actually happened was even wilder. Then the fact that, you know, three years later, we were getting, you know, Eiffel Tower and, you know, the Acropolis and, it was happening all over the world it was a pretty impactful kind of it was pretty amazing to see it happen so the question then became i think because that that all really led up to the cop 15 climate negotiations in 2009 and you know i think we were a big part of that climate change um conversation So weirdly, we, we had this one-off, uh, you know, by the time we got to uh, Earth Hour, the third Earth Hour, which is 2009, there's about 5,000 cities taking part, right? So it was pretty massive. And most of the global icons that you can sort of think of would have been part of this and da da da. But by the time uh, we then got through to December, which is when the COP um, negotiations were happening in Copenhagen, we were actually going to have a one-city uh Eartha in Copenhagen. It was called Hopenhagen. <laughs> clever. Advertising agency. Uh, yeah. Maybe maybe a bit too clever for its own good. <laughs> anyway, got back to Sydney and started to talk to the teams all around the world. So it was about three or four thousand different sort of sub teams that, that set themselves up, all kind of self-started teams all over the world. And we suddenly started to realize that how few of them actually knew that COP15 had actually happened. So on one hand, we'd, we'd kind of been enveloped in this whole conservation world, back to the talk to your own, you know, the 5%, but we'd actually got into our own 5% problem. And then we realized that all these teams all over the world, they were still doing whatever they were doing. And they, they, it almost hadn't mattered. And what had started to happen was Earth Hour had started to go beyond the hour and people were starting to use the brand to build credibility or profile or energy behind what they were doing locally. So we actually had almost by accident created sort of the first kind of shared economy version of a conservation organization. And thinking of this collective aggregate effect, what is Citizens of the Great Barrier Reef trying to do? The idea of Citizens really was, we saw it as an opportunity to you know, take a bit of that Earth out stuff and sort of actually design what we think is a 21st century conservation organization. So instead of with Earth Hour, we kind of tried to retrofit it. This to me looked like an opportunity if we get the right people to help with it, to apply a whole load of different 
thinking behind how you build an organization using essentially the Great Barrier Reef as one massive pilot project. So uh, from the networking to building a network of people on the reef and therefore being able to use every asset on the reef, from every tourism boat to every research boat to every island to, you know, as part of your on-the-ground conservation network, to applying really, really good tech. But, you know, the, the other piece of this is, okay, so what would it actually take to conserve and protect the Great Barrier Reef? So there's that piece. Um, but then there's the piece of the, the individual, the citizen, and business, which is, I guess, a way of thinking about that is much more around material use. You know, these are all things that you start to start to. So, sort of, so what we've been trying to do with citizens is how do you start to, to marry the idea of kind of the icon with the actions you can take on the ground and how we can help do everything we can to mitigate um, the challenges that it, that it faces with the actions you can take wherever you are on the planet. It strikes me as so place-based, obviously. The reef is where it is geographically in the world, though there are reefs everywhere. The Great Barrier Reef is the Great Barrier Reef. It seems like, maybe on the face of it, such a place-based campaign, but you've managed to, by broadening it to, as a citizen who cares about the Great Barrier Reef, you could live in Copenhagen, uh, Amsterdam, and care about it. And, and, And it kind of addresses something Adrian talked about with ability efficacy. The barrier to entry is low to get involved. Um, and and you've thought about that, yeah. So we we have um, the biggest project we're working on at the moment is called the Great Reef Census, and this is the this is a project that we're working on. Again, kind of imagine if we've got every or as many assets on the reef as possible. The other is how can we actually kind of get a baseline survey of as much of the reef as possible in one short grab, so over an eight to twelve week period. And so the reef is so big, like forty percent of it's never been surveyed which is pretty stunning um, stat. So we're, we're working on that project at the moment. And also there's a few elements of sort of simplistically three elements. There. One is capturing the image of a bit of reef. Then there's the analysis, which is going to be uh, much more driven around citizen science, but then kind of calibrated with scientists. So that will I mean anywhere in the world, you'll be able to help us analyze those images. Um, but again, you could do that if you're in your bedroom in Amsterdam, or you can do that if you're in an office in New York or wherever. Um, and then, and then that, that analysis goes back to help those who are managing the reef to better manage the reef, and to particularly find where the really healthy corals are. And, and, and of course, once you start to get, if you can get that to happen, if you can get you know mass engagement in that project, you also start to change the story of the reef, and you start to, I hope, create a really interesting piece of communication around, you know, the fact that this place is still extraordinary, and that. There's something worth fighting for, and you can start to link that back to what do you do in terms of your individual actions. You can start to link that back to, you know, we're all responsible. We all, you know, you kind of globalize it. So that's the whole piece of engaging the world in the future of the reef. Um, Andy Ridley, thanks so much for um, taking time out of your busy schedule. Thanks for coming on the show. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks for asking. That brings us to the close of yet another episode of Think Business Futures. Think Business Futures is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. This podcast is made by the UTS Business School with support of 2SER 107.3. You'll find links to Adrian's work and other examples of the collective aggregate effect, including Earth Hour, at 2SER.com slash think business futures 
You can also search for us in your favorite podcast app. Thanks to Adrian Camilleri for coming on the show to explain the collective aggregate effect and his research. Thank you also to Andy Ridley for calling us from Cairns to explain how he's made it work with both Earth Hour and Citizens of the Great Barrier Reef. Now, if each of our listeners all just spent one minute to subscribe to the podcast and rate us, then Think Business Futures would be the top-rated business podcast in the world. Until next time.